they say you should never start a sermon with an apology. So I want to apologise, first of all, that I'm starting with an apology. And now the apology. Uh, I'm going to be talking about some things today which may be, to some of you, a little bit close to the bone. Uh, perhaps some things that uh, have been part of your experience, maybe things that you hold dear, maybe things that those in your family or neighbours uh, consider to be particularly important. And let me tell you what it is that I'm going to be doing. I'm, I'm going to be, hopefully, uh, carefully and constructively critiquing Roman Catholicism. Um, now, in doing that, um, I, I want to be very open about two things. One is that I'm not going to be saying everything there is to say about Roman Catholicism. I'm going to zoom in on one topic because it's the topic that is prominent in this passage, and that is the topic of Mary and what do we do with Mary. And I will be critiquing uh, a number of things that we see in Roman Catholicism uh, about what they do with Mary. And uh, as I do that, I, I hope that we can kind of um, park our prejudices to the side and look at the text of Scripture. Now, the, the prejudices might be that uh, we come from a, a very reformed, Protestant, uh, non-Catholic position, and so we may not think about Mary much at all. And in fact, Mary might only come up in our thinking because her name gets mentioned in a particular passage. But remember, if that's you, that there might be other people who've grown up uh, in a Roman Catholic family, who've gone along to a Roman Catholic church, who, who've gone along to Roman Catholic school perhaps, uh, for whom the way that Mary is treated and I would say venerated and prayed to is a very significant part of their beliefs. So we, we just need to recognise that we are kind of touching on areas that may for some people be quite personal, uh, but I think it is fundamental to following God that we hear what God has to say on every matter, whether it might be a little touchy or not. And I, I hope to be able to do that with you. As I said, it, it won't be everything that there is to say by any means. And there's always a danger when you say a little bit about a big thing, and uh, I hope you'll forgive me if you think that I've done that. Um, Fiona and I spent a couple of weeks in the country of Sri Lanka uh, in November, December. We went there to celebrate our wedding anniversary and it's a very religious country. I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks that uh, Buddhism is the most prominent. There are Buddhist uh, stupas and temples everywhere. There's also a significant number of Hindu temples. Uh, there are mosques. But after that, I would say the most significant presence, religious-wise, is Roman Catholic. And we noticed it especially on the first day as we were travelling from the airport to the place that we were staying, where it seemed that around about every 100 metres, and I don't know why this is the case, there was a glass case, and inside the glass case, there was a statue that was usually Mary. Sometimes it was Mary with a baby. Other times it might have been a figure of Jesus. But the most common statue was that of Mary and uh, very much a part of 
traditional Roman Catholicism is you'll see lots and lots of statues and icons uh, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. In fact, um, when, you, uh, when you look at uh, the nature of what Christianity is through a traditional kind of Roman Catholic lens, you would think that Mary is very prominent, if not the most prominent person. I think just by looking at statues and pictures that you see around about. But it's also a big feature when it comes to prayer. Uh, I googled what is the most common prayer and uh, interestingly there were two answers to that. One was uh, the Lord's Prayer, the one that Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, uh, which the Roman Catholic Church call the Our Father. That is, they, they name their prayers the first couple of words of the prayer. So the Our Father is the Lord's Prayer. That's quite prominent. But some argued that the Hail Mary, which again is the first two words of a prayer that I've actually printed on your outlines there. Um, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Some would argue, and have argued, that this prayer, the Hail Mary, is prayed a lot more than the Lord's Prayer. There are 1.3 billion Roman Catholics in the world, and if you follow through the rosary, then you pray the Hail Mary ten times as much as you pray the Lord's Prayer. So it's a very prominent thing, a prayer to Mary. Hail Mary. And I'll, I'll come to that uh, in a bit. Um, as you go through uh, the rosary, and I imagine that some of you might have grown up being taught to pray through the prayers of the rosary. I have a friend who was raised um, in a Roman Catholic uh, household who has written a book um, reflecting on that. Uh, the book's called Nothing in My Hand I Bring. It's written by a guy called Ray Galea, who's the pastor of a multicultural church now in Dubai. And he said that as he was growing up, he was taught to pray the prayers of the rosary and they include the Our Father, they include the Glory Be, uh, the glory be to God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and so on. And they also include the Hail Mary. And Hail Mary is very, very prominent. But at the end of these prayers, there is one that he was taught to pray at about the age of eight. And it is this that finishes off the prayers of the rosary. It's Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry. Poor banished children of Eve, to thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. So I'm giving you that as a background to reflect on in the light of the scriptures 
uh, in Luke that we're looking at. And you might like to follow on on your handouts. It's got the Bible text in there, so you can look along with that. And I'll take you through the passage uh, kind of roughly verse by verse. So what we see um, in the beginning um, is that Mary gets up and in a hurry goes to the hill country to visit Elizabeth. Now, why might she be going to visit Elizabeth? Well, I think the answer is a few verses before that we looked at last week. And that is when the angel is talking to Mary about how she will give birth to Jesus and she asks the question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Uh, the angel answers that the Holy Spirit will come on her, the power of the Most High will overshadow her and so the Holy One will be born to you and he will be called the Son of God. And then as kind of proof of this, the angel says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So one more verse, then the verse in our passage, Mary wants to go quickly to Elizabeth, you can imagine. I mean, here's this grandmother-aged woman, never had a child, and uh, the promises of the angel are tying together what's happening with Mary to what's happening with Elizabeth. So she hurries on. And at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to the town in the hill country of Judea, where she, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb and Elizabeth, uh, sorry, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and uh, we'll come to those blessings in a minute. But first of all, notice that there's a physical response in Elizabeth. The baby in her womb leaps. Um, how could that be? Well, we've already learned back in chapter 1, verse 15, that the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John, has been filled with the Spirit. So the baby might not know what's going on, but the Spirit of God certainly does. And so the baby leaps in the womb. Mary probably had in and of herself no clue why this relative would be visiting Mary. But notice, she is filled with the Holy Spirit. So the baby and the mother, John and Elizabeth, by the Spirit of God are given insight into what's going on. And you see that in the response because there's no other way other than by the Spirit of God that Elizabeth would exclaim what she does. And because the Spirit of God in the Old Testament often fills people to then speak and do the, speak the Word of God and do the will of God, I think that's what we see happening. And so there are three blessings Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Now, it's only by the Spirit of God that Elizabeth would know this. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How does she know that Jesus is growing inside Mary by the Spirit of God? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. 
Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. So there's a number of aspects to this, this blessing language. There's a triple blessing here, if you like. Mary is blessed among women. Uh, the child within her is blessed. And Mary is blessed, verse 45, because she believes that God will keep the promise that he made through the angel to her that she would have the Son of God. So the blessing of Mary is a very prominent thing in Elizabeth's words to Mary. And it continues in Mary's response. Now, Mary's response uh, is a song of praise. Uh, some people know this by the words of the, mag the Magnificat. Um, I, I think there's a piece of music that's been put to it called the Magnificat. Uh, the only time I've ever read the Bible in Latin uh, was during this week and I discovered uh, why it's called the Magnificat because that's the opening words in Latin of what's going on here. It's Mary's Magnificat. That is, my soul glorifies the Lord or my soul magnifies the Magnificat, the Lord. And uh, what we see as we look at this, I think... Uh, uh, very rich words from Mary. They're extraordinarily rich. Um, you can read through this, and if you've got a, a kind of cross-reference Bible, one that shows you links to other parts of Scripture, every verse, every phrase has an Old Testament link to it. It's rich in the language of the Old Testament. Now, does that mean that Mary... Uh, when the angel spoke to her, immediately sat down and started studying her Old Testament. I, I, I doubt that. I think, again, it's probably the work of the Spirit of God is to bring these, these rich phrases of the Word of God to bear so that as she speaks, she's effectively prophesying God's Word to those around about her. Um, and what does she say? Well, what she says is, is so reminiscent of Hannah's song back in 1 Samuel. Uh, if you want to go from here, we won't take the time to look at a comparison between the two, but it is worth reading 1 Samuel. In fact, read from the beginning of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, where you've got connections to Elizabeth because you've got Hannah who's getting old, who doesn't have a child, and she prays that God would give her a child and God answers that prayer and she has a child and then she wants to devote the child to God and then in chapter 2 she sings a song. And again, it's a rich kind of eloquent, uh, the wonders of God type song and it's very similar to Mary's song that's here. But I take it that Mary, probably like Elizabeth, although we're not told explicitly, has been filled by the Spirit to be able to say these things. And I think you can group them together in three ways. First of all, the privileges that God gives, praising God for them. Um, and let's look at that. So Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So these first couple of verses, they're very personal. Notice the first person, my soul, my spirit will call me blessed. He's done great things for me. 
This is God specifically blessing Mary. And she knows this blessing and she speaks of it, what God has done. And she actually um, prophesies effectively that God's blessing upon her will be declared by the nations to come, by people throughout all generations, calling her blessed. Secondly, as you move on, it generalises. So verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. You see that what God has done to Mary is part of a pattern of the way that God relates to people. God relates well to the humble. He, he's the one who gives to the weak, to the needy, to the, the hungry, to the thirsty, to the vulnerable, to the humble. He is the one who reaches out to those who fear him, but equally he's the one who brings down the proud and the haughty. He, he's the one who will show the bankruptcy of the wealth of the nobles and he will lift up the, those that are poor in spirit. And so you see the general pattern of here. And Mary, of course, describes herself in the midst of this as God's humble servant. So the privileges that God gives, she praises God for this uh, to her. And then she praises God for him behaving this way throughout all generations. It's the pattern that God follows. And then lastly, in verses 54 and 55... He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So this aspect of Mary's praise puts the actions of God into the context of God's story. We looked at it last year. God made promises to Abraham that through Abraham there would be blessing. There will be blessing to God's people and God's people would bless all the nations and God would be king over his people and, and you get these promises that are developed further through the promise of God's anointed king who will be the descendant of David. And all this is coming together now in the beginnings of the gospel and Mary's song declares that at the heart of this God is a promise-keeping God. He's all-powerful, he can do these things. He's all-merciful, he reaches out to the needy and in so doing, he keeps the promise that he'd made long ago. See, it's a pretty wonderful song of praise. Uh, it, it declares the greatness of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God. So what do we do with it? And how does it relate to this issue of how we treat Mary? Well, I think there's a number of things that we see in the text here and there's a number of things that we do not see. And we need to observe both what's there and what's not there. First of all, what is there? Mary is clearly blessed. She is privileged by God. She bears Jesus. She's the one who takes this fetus in her womb, 
who gives birth to the child, who is the mother of the child who grows to be the man who dies on a cross for the salvation of the world. That is a blessed responsibility that Mary was given. We see that this blessing will be repeated down through the generations. We're doing it now. It's been put into scripture. We are reflecting on the fact that God selected this young girl who was not yet sexually active to be the mother of the Saviour. It says all that and Mary is blessed because of that. But what do we see in Mary's song about her attitude? Well, I think it's very helpful to see in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Mary looks to Jesus to be her Saviour. Um, now, hear what's being said here. Mary needs to be saved. There is a doctrine that says that uh, Mary was immaculately conceived, immaculate conception. It has at its core the belief that Mary was like Eve, who was brought into existence without the effects of original sin. And it was necessary for Mary to be completely untainted by human sinfulness so that she could be an appropriate vessel to bear the Saviour, the Son of God. But we're not taught that. We're taught that Mary self-consciously is looking to be saved. And the one who looks to be saved is the one who needs a Saviour from their sin. Mary sinned, I take it, like you and I. She was blessed to take on that role and God in his extraordinary sovereign purposes is able to use a sinful woman to bear his holy son and bring him into the world. We, we, we also don't find any sense in Mary's song or, might I say, in any of the other descriptions about Mary in the Bible that describe her as having any role in the process of redemption. She is not a co-redeemer or a mediatrix or a co-redemptrix. She doesn't have that role. Now, she looks to her son to save her. You'll find mentions of Mary in all the four Gospels. I think there's around about 90 mentions of Mary. You'll find one mention of Mary in the first chapter of the book of Acts. She's with the disciples in the upper room praying. You'll find another mention of an unrelated or an undefined Mary in Romans chapter 16, one of the greetings. We don't know if that's this Mary or another Mary, we're not told. There is a Mary who's the mother of John mentioned a bit later in the book of Acts. That's it for the New Testament. Now I said I wanted you to think about what's not said. 
There is nothing in any of the letters in the New Testament that talks about the role of Mary. It's just not there. And these are letters that are written to the church to get things right, to understand the core of their theology, to keep going back to the Saviour and, and looking at Jesus who is both Lord and Christ, who gave his life and who was raised from the dead. Mary doesn't come into any of the discussion. And you've got churches that seriously need correcting. And Mary is not part of the correction. See, I, I think that Mary's role was limited to bearing and raising Jesus and praying to God that she might be saved by her son. But not only should we trust in Mary's saviour, like she does, we should magnify Mary's God and not magnify Mary. Um, we, we're called to put our trust in God, but we're also called to treat God as God. So the two responses that we make to the gospel are submission or repentance. That is, we, we know that we've done wrong. We, we turn and we, or we bow and we look to the lordship of our God, to the lordship of Jesus. But we also put our trust in his saving work. So we submit to him as Lord and we put our trust in him as Saviour. He is our Lord and Saviour. We should only submit to him as Lord if he is God. The Bible makes it clear that to worship anyone other than God is blasphemy. In fact, there's a couple of examples. I'll read you these. Um, one of these I got dreadfully wrong when I was speaking at Sydney University one time. I'll, I'll tell you that in a second if I feel it's appropriate, but having given it an introduction, I've probably now got to do it. Um, in, uh, in Acts chapter 14, uh, the, the crowd saw that Paul had done these extraordinary things and they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So they're wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are only humans like you. We're bringing you the good news and telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, the thing I did wrong was um, I was getting worked up in a, in a mission talk at Sydney University and I was talking about how you should only worship God and not worship a human being. Just as, as Paul and Barnabas tore open their, instead of saying their shirts to show that they were mere men, I said they tore open their shorts to show that they were mere men. <laughs> And I didn't, I actually didn't even know that I'd said that. And, and I, yeah, there were a lot of people weeping. In, in the, and then, you know, as it happens, about five seconds later, you get what you've done. And there wasn't a place for me to hide. It was, um... So the point is, right, 
You only worship God. Only God, not, not human beings. They're not to be worshipped. Um, and another example of this, not just not um, human beings, it's also not angels. I'll give you an example of that. So in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10... I'll read from verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So you don't worship humans, you don't worship angels, you only worship God. Jesus is God. And man, the God-man, and we worship Jesus. Now, the Hail Mary, I think, is effectively offering worship to Mary. Hail. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. You, you look at it, and it's picking up so much of this language. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That's straight from Luke's gospel. But it's the context that it gets put in. Hail Mary, Mother of God, and it's what's asked of Mary. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And as I look at this, I, and I, I've not had a, a background in Roman Catholicism. And what I know about it, I've had to read up on and explore and it's not something that's deeply personal and part of my experience. But as I look at this, it is very difficult for me to see that it's not asking Mary to intercede on our behalf to Jesus. And yet the model prayer of Jesus radically says that we can approach God as our Father. Because of the death of Jesus Christ... We can now come into the very presence of God. We don't need another intercessor. We don't need somebody who will be a go-between Jesus and us and then Jesus and God. No, we can come straight to the Father on the basis of Jesus. The Spirit who enables us to call Jesus Lord enables us to call God Abba, our Father. And we don't need an advocate because Jesus is that advocate. He is the mediator. And so the praise and the worship and, and the magnifying and, and the exalting and the honour and the glory are due to God and only God. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelation 4.11. And then in chapter 5, Jesus, the Lamb, joins in the celebration. He is exalted alongside the one seated on the throne. See, the, the spirit-filled believer will honour God as Father and Jesus as Lord. So what do we do with Mary? I think we follow her example. To put our trust in Jesus and to offer our praise to God. Let's pray.